Here we are at another episode of Stern Chats. Sherry, who do we have on the show today? Frank and I are honored to have with us our fellow first-year MBA student, Chris Larson, former captain and company commander in the Army and Purple Heart recipient, to talk to us today about courage, humility, and resilience. Chris brings an infectious energy and laugh each time he steps on campus, reminding us to be grateful for our choices in life, the ones we love, and the NYU Stern community, which can feel almost like a family. We hope you'll be as moved and motivated by his candid nature as Frank and I were during the interview. He's yet another example of what Stern has to offer. That's right, Sherry, and Chris's story is relevant to everyone here at Stern because through combat, recovery, and resilience, he shows us to keep on fighting no matter what happens. At NYU Stern, the veterans community is very important, and Chris's story may be very typical for veterans coming to Stern. Thanks to NYU's continued focus on helping vets and a generous donation from the Fertitta family, we will continue to have amazing leaders like Chris among us at NYU Stern. Sherry, do you have anything to add? Yes, in fact, Chris has an incredible radio voice. <laughs> yeah, it, it is silky smooth, isn't it? Well, Sherry, should we start the show? Let's start the show. Cue that music. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Fericchio and Sherry Holt. Would you wouldn't mind just introducing no. yourself to like a hypothetical radio audience? No. Hi, I'm Chris Larson, and I'm currently an MBA one at NYU Stern. Uh, my previous experience is uh, I have eight years experience in the Army as an infantry officer, and from there I spent three years in the oil and gas industry, and that has led me to Stern. That's a well-practiced 20-second story, by the way. So, Can I suggest a career for you in voiceovers? <laughs> Seriously. Or just like laughing professionally into <laughs> I want you to narrate books that I listen as I fall asleep. <laughs> yes. You know? Oh my so gosh. the cow jumped over the moon. Oh. oh I'm <laughs> sure. My eyes are closing. Let me ask you this question, Chris. Yeah. You know, you're at West Point, um, and you're a college kid, essentially. For right. You're an institutionalized college kid. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want it. And then you, you graduate. Yeah. Well, it's a different kind of college. Yeah. But then you graduate and things get real. Because what's going on in the world at that time? Yeah. So when I entered college, um, it was early 2001. I think we started in July of 2001. We started our uh, summer training there at West Point called Beast Barracks. And then within the first month of classes, September 11th, you know, happened. The World Trade Centers were hit. And so the dynamic shifted pretty quickly to we, I mean, they, West Point has always done an amazing job of training leaders for, you know, whatever future army need there is, but it became much more combat driven very quickly. I mean, we had professors that they were, I think they were trying to cycle them out as quickly as possible to get them to combat, not professors, but they were taking people from the line and bringing them back as quickly as possible, where by the time I was a junior and senior, I think everyone had at least somehow, maybe not everyone, but a lot of them had been around combat so they could give you a perspective. I feel like a lot more combat leaders were back 
yeah, at West Point by the time I was graduating. And that's different than a lot of people's colleges, college experiences because from freshman year through senior year, you said, oh, I know that when this ends, I'm going into a war zone. Yeah. And so that, I mean, it's still very surreal because, I mean, you still go to class. I play lacrosse. So you have a lot of other, you're trying to pick up girls, trying to drink, have a good time. Were you successful at that, that <laughs> second one? <laughs> I mean, no, you, I you leave West Point. You're obviously very proud to be in the army. You weren't. Liar. Yeah. So we were talking get, about West Yeah, Point. we are talking about West Point. But you leave West Point, right? And you, you get out, and, and you're in the Army now. Mm-hmm. And you go through several different iterations of jobs and leadership positions. And it brings you sort of to like a culminating point when you're actually deployed. And as far as we know... Um, there's some pretty serious stuff that happens involving firefights. You got injured, mm-hmm. which changed your life in a big way. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us that story? Sure. So I was, um, so like you alluded to, you know, following West Point, you go through some additional training to become an infantry officer or to kind of hone your skills as an infantry officer. Um, and then I went to my unit and pretty quickly, I think within like four to six months, we deployed end of October, 2000 and, Six. At first, I was a staff junkie. Uh, I was on staff. Does that insult people that do staff positions? Yeah, or? probably. And which meant that I was in charge of, you know, some portion of logistics, so supporting the guys who were actually fighting. But that wasn't what I was trained to do. I was trained to be an infantry officer. And so I did, but I was that because I had one blown out my knee and two, I didn't have a ranger tab. So I sat on staff from October to December, and apparently I'd been doing a good job. I was. <laughs> So stupidly gung ho that I um, requested to go out on these supply missions, even though it was just supposed to be uh, in the office. And that was where I actually got blown up the first time. We got hit by an IED. It made it so the vehicle could no longer move. And it was really interesting. And I'm not saying I did anything incredible, but your training kicks in. Like you, you don't even know what you're doing. So told the guy, even though I was not leading this truck or anything, you tell the guy to start firing. He didn't want to. Tell the guy to, to um, these are all logistics guys, so these are not infantry guys. So their mindset is just a little bit different. And then we told the guy to drive, and he couldn't drive so because the vehicle was destroyed. So I hopped, I mean, this is just like, you don't even remember this, you ho- I hopped directly out. The guy in front of me who was um, an NCO who had been deployed multiple times, he was doing the exact same thing, he hopped right out. We met, we hooked up the toe strap and just got the heck out of there or pulled the vehicle out of there and then continued to engage and then continue to move out out of the kill zone. But it was like secondary to, like you don't even think about it. It's and like, that was, your, was that your first time in that battle it was, situation? It was my first time getting hit with an IED, but it was my second patrol that I'd been out on. But I was not in like doing a lot of patrols at that point. I was again sitting in an office or in like a wood hut. So now in your mind, there's a fifty percent chance that every time I leave. <laughs> yeah. So I was yeah. So then I kept on telling my boss like I need to get into an infantry platoon. And so I got like December actually it was on my birthday, December twenty first, two thousand and seven uh, two thousand and six, I took over my platoon. And um, that was awesome. Um, I had amazing soldiers. So they'd been in combat for like three months, and so they were receiving their new person in charge who had not been in combat. Well, I mean, I'd been there with them, but I had not been fighting with them, and they had just lost one of their soldiers. So it was a really kind of tough um, 
I'll say tough. It was probably just as tough for everyone else stepping into a role like that. But it's it was interesting dynamic that you have to step into being the one in charge. But on that particular day, we had intelligence come to us saying that we had, you know, a potential IED in place or IED cell building a complex or like some sort of ambush site. So we were out there, and so we diverted our mission from a reconnaissance mission to basically a move a movement to contact which is basically you're moving, you don't know exactly where the enemy is or what they're doing, but you're moving to engage them. Now contact is many different things. It's direct contact where we exchange fire, it's visual contact. So we were basically moving to see what would happen. So we were coming up on the enemy to see what we could find out or anything like that. Um, We got to the area and it was eerily quiet. So quiet's bad. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of times uh, quiet is bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then we saw this one guy. So as soon as you see this, you're like, okay, military age male, he needs to we need to, you know, kind of bring him to us to talk to him because he's the only person walking around on this road. <laughs> That's sort of yeah. That's a clue. Big clue. Yeah. So as soon as we saw that, um, I put our guys into a defensive position. So we were going to have to cross a canal about 20 feet wide um, with this rickety bridge. I mean, it's not really a bridge, but we needed to cross it. And so there was a pretty nice roaring canal underneath us. So we uh, basically set in defensive postures because we knew when we saw this guy, something was up. Um, But basically, so we we were talking to this guy and he was so nervous. It was so, (laughs) and we were like, all right, something bad is gonna happen. So we continued in our very defensive posture and started to bound over each other, so we were about to collapse the side that I was on. So I was still on the, the, the far side, so I had guys forward, about three guys forward set up in a defensive, and we were about to move forward with this guy. This is over the canal? Over the canal. Okay. And my guys in the back were still down, so I was about to move across with him. So as soon as I stood up to move across, uh, they opened fire on us. And they were from an elevated position, which means that they were, I think, on the second story and third story of these two buildings. I think it was second story. And they were just firing down on us. And again, it's one of those times where you immediately go into no-think mode. You just kind of react. And the Army does a great job of, you know, it's called like battle drills. I mean, they basically train you how to respond, so you don't even need to make that assessment. So we're getting shot at. I immediately turn and um, start shooting. And the reason, is interesting, afterwards I knew this, but while... I was going through, I did make this very quick analysis of the situation is we had reeds in front of us, so they're pretty high. And I also had guys in front of me, off to the side, displaced. And so I didn't go flat on the ground in the prone, because one, I wouldn't be able to see the guy shooting, and two, I didn't know exactly where my guys were if I went straight down to the ground. So I did not want to be shooting anywhere near them. And so about 10 seconds into it, you're just rattling off rounds shooting at this guy, a couple guys. And one round of theirs went straight into my front hand, through like, through my rifle, and then out through my back hand, and basically knocked me over. After I got knocked over, I, I just felt like I just got hit with something really hard, and I was like, "Whoa, that was rough." And so I reached up my right hand. This is just how the army trains you so well. I reached up to put my weapon on safe, so if anyone came over to grab my weapon, they wouldn't fire off around and hurt someone else. Um, so I reached up 
and my hand was just like totally mangled. Like my right hand was totally <laughs> gone, not gone, totally messed up and it was not working. And there was like blood gushing out of my arm because I had hit an artery in my, uh, my right hand. And so as soon as I reached up to do that, my squad leader was like right there. He just came straight over and put his knee directly on my forearm. Um, because basically when you're bleeding, you need to stop the bleeding. It's very easy. It's like go or no go. <laughs> bleeding, <Yeah>. stop bleeding. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and as soon as he did that, I mean, we have tourniquets and gear all over us. So he pulled out one of my tourniquets and just slapped it right on. And it basically cinched down everything, stopped the bleeding. So me, my, then my hand's like this. I'm like, all right, I'm still okay. <laughs> I go to reach up with my left hand to pick up my weapon. And it's like limp. Like, I cannot move my left hand. You because know, like, the bullet had traveled through both hands. Both my hands, yeah. Got it. But, yeah. And so... In, in the moment, you, you're saying you're not really aware of how injured you are. No, you're just... So the reason... I think you're not as... I mean, maybe some more devastating injuries you're probably aware a little bit more quickly. And I still think then adrenaline kicks in. But I also think when you're... You know, when you're in the moment and leading and, you know, your guys are still out there and you're, you're so focused on the mission... And again, the adrenaline is an amazing, you know, way to combat pain. Um, you just don't think about that. You're thinking about, okay, what do I need to do next to continue on what I was doing to make sure I'm still doing the role that I need to be doing? Um, and so um, at that point, I realized that, okay, I'm slightly combat ineffective as a person. So I, I basically, my squad leader and I just stuck together at that point because I was like, I can't even like touch a radio, but I need him and me to be on the same page if we are going to maneuver around these guys. But at that point, I there was a berm like right behind us, so I jumped back over the berm with him, and we continued to fight. Um, and luckily, we had four four trucks. So basically, a truck is a Humvee, um, and we had two two forties and uh, a fifty cal. Uh, no, two two forties. Are those? Those are guns? bigger bigger guns. Yeah. So a two forty would be like a medium machine gun. So they started hammering the house from about 800 meters away with those. And then somehow we got, so anytime you're in troops in contact, you report troops in contact, and we immediately got pushed Apaches helicopters. So as we were still fighting there. And you're directing all of this because you're in I'm, charge of this. I'm, I'm talking to my squad leader who is directing it back and being able to talk to who they need to. Because, my, because my, you have no functionality. Yeah, my hands are really hands. not working at this point. My mouth is still like I can still talk and yeah. yeah. Well, I guess I'm making the point that like it's you haven't actually relinquished command of all these troops. No, even no, no. Though you're injured. Yeah, yeah. So the pain has not set in yet. I feel still feeling really nothing at this point, except I was a little bit nervous about the bleeding, but as soon as we stopped the bleeding, I was okay. I got bandaged up in like a in like a house right next to us. There was like a a house that we just kind of eventually moved into, and they bandaged up my hand, and I still didn't know my finger wasn't there. <laughs> I thought it was like hanging in my glove there. So they bandaged us up, um, and then uh, we walked back to the vehicles, like, like about 800 meters away. And then we drove, we drove about an, uh, 45 minutes to get back to the base, and that is when the pain kicked in. <laughs> on the drive home. On the drive home, because at that point you've, your guys are all back in safe. You're no longer kind of focused on the mission. We still focused, but I was probably less focused on the mission at that point, so the pain started to become very real, and it started to feel like my hands were on fire, like just on, I felt, and that's the only way I can describe it, like fire on your hands. About 45 minutes later, we got back to our patrol base. Um, we unloaded there, 
I walked into the medical station because we had a, like a small medical station right there. Uh, we had a PA on hand who are they're amazing people in the army. They have so much knowledge, um, and he basically assessed uh, a couple injuries on there. They kept the tourniquets on. Um, and he's the one who told me, he's like, uh, your finger's not there. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I thought it's like, check my glove again. <laughs> um, but from there, I got airlifted back to uh, Biop, which is the Baghdad International Airport. There's a, a cache right there, which is basically a hospital. You would think of like emergency room for a hospital. And you're effectively, now you're in a safe. Yeah, so now I'm, I'm pulled back from the line. I'm no longer in, I mean, you're still in a combat zone, but you're not, I was never in any danger at that point. Right. Um, and then in the hospital, the one of the docs was, uh, as the, after they give you like tons of drugs, you're kind of like a little bit loopy, and they're talking about, they take you right into surgery and do stuff. And then in between one of my surgeries, I do remember this very vividly, they were talking about cutting off my right hand. Oh my God. Because it was mangled. So I had like uh, an arterial tear. So my, my artery was completely ripped. My bone was shattered through my wrist. My tendons were all ripped, um, and my finger was gone. And a pretty, I'm pretty sure part of it was aesthetically. It looked like it was done. And I just remember telling the doc that if I wake up without a hand, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> and, uh, and he's just like, I think he turned to the nurse and like told him to like crank Turn up, up the drugs. <laughs> I was, it was funny because I was You're so like, hey, doc, mad. In the, <laughs> I need all your, I need, uh, I need your yeah. A effort here, doc. Yeah. But there's also a lot of people that care about you, mm -hmm. uh, who you have returned home to. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the interaction with them? You know, I, so, I mean, my wife was amazing. She, she, so she got the call when I was still in, uh, Baghdad and, um, the nurse gave me the phone straight out of surgery, but they wanted to let her know that I was okay. Cause she hadn't gotten, so no information went back. So they didn't know that I was injured or anything. So the nurse gets on the phone and she goes, Mrs. Larson? And she's like, yes. And the nurse goes, oh, I'm a nurse here in, in Baghdad. And immediately, as soon as you say something like that, but she was very good. The nurse was like, Chris is fine. He's sitting right here next to me. Um, he wants to talk to you. He's doing fine. He's right here. And so I, I t apparently I tried to talk to her, um, <laughs> but I was like, "Hey, baby, I love you. like a smooth talker." I would hey, love baby. to. <laughs> you gave her your jazz voice, Chris. No. no, I was like my high, totally high voice. I'd love to hear the story from her perspective. Oh, God. Right? That's really tough for me to even hear. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. But so the funny part about this is, so that call got disconnected like really quickly. The nurse called right back and said, hey, we're gonna have, for some reason, one of my soldiers happened to be in the hospital for like a gastrointestinal like <laughs> test that he needed to have. Yeah, super important. Yeah, like super important. He comes up, he's like, hey, sir. What happened to you? I'm like, oh, no. what's up, Sergeant Ortiz? Yeah, I was just like, <laughs> 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 no, he, he knew what happened. So he had been briefed prior to coming right. in that I had been shot. Right. And um, so I asked him to call my wife. And he called her and talked to her for a while. And to this day, like, she, like, loves Sergeant, and she calls him Sergeant Ortiz. But it's Sergeant Ortiz. <laughs> right. And he's gotten out now, and now he's uh, having a great career in, like, professional fishing, I think. But Really? Yeah, I know. Weird. Of all things. I know. So a little bit about the recovery process. Um, it took about two years, 
I think it was 12 surgeries. And the reason it's not, it doesn't look like a devastating injury, and it's really not. I mean, you can still function very well. Uh, it's not like, you know, losing a limb is, you know, the guys who lose their legs, their arms, and things like that. And it's just incredibly difficult. Uh, I think the thing about the hands is it's, it's something that has to be strong at the same time it has to be very you know sensitive and dexterous yeah, tactile, like exactly there's a lot of tactile quality to your hands and exactly and so what they had to do was just like a lot of tiny little surgeries in there like repairing things and just like putting things back together they wanted to fuse my wrist which if you're not familiar with that it basically would be my wrist would be in that position for the rest of my life now i don't have a huge amount of leeway there but at least it still moves. You a can still bit. move your wrist. Exactly, I can still move it. Right. There's some degree of motion there. Um, but yeah, so it took a while to figure out all these different little things going on. And I actually spent 60 days in casts, dual casts, and my fingers did not move. So I was worried that, like, we were. My wife was extremely worried. I was also worried because my fingers and my hands were not moving at all. Yeah. So like was, you would try. Yeah, you just and sit there so and you'd be like paralyzed. So yeah, so in nerve damage, a lot of times, like uh, I think the swelling will um, come up around the nerve and it'll either like pinch off the nerve, or a lot of mine was also blood supply. I think there was a lot of like terrible blood supply. Um, but yeah, after a while, I mean, they, they would just do occupational therapy on me for like hours at a time, and just eventually my hands came back. Chris, that story is both hard to hear uh, and inspirational and amazing all at the same time. You, you really have been more than most people there and back again, you know? How has this changed your life? Um, I think it's made me more of a resilient person. I mean, a more recent endeavor, I, I applied to Stern last year and I got rejected and it did not stop me from getting in here this year. So. I don't know. I mean, it's probably got me a, a deeper connection with my wife. A, she has definitely taught me how to be more empathetic, and I don't think that would have maybe come as quickly as if uh, if the situation did not present itself. So, the word warrior has been spoken to me now over the past, I guess, 24 hours. Multiple times I've heard uh, numerous vets say that in describing, you know, their, their fellow peers. What what is a warrior? For me, I see like a like a Hercules character with like a pitchfork or like a, Hercules I don't even doesn't know. have a pitchfork. I mean, what a, what a, what, like a she doesn't what, need what, weapons. Like a thunderbolt. <laughs> sure. I, I, guess so, not a I think that's a really interesting question because I don't think a warrior has to be something physically dominant. I think a warrior is not built by this exuding, um, like I said, physical dominance. It's built by mentality. Um, and so anyone can really be a warrior. I mean, the person that, you know, successfully beats cancer is a warrior, just as much as um, the NCO that we're talking about or the non-commissioned officer that has been through five deployments and is the reason why you're still alive or something like that. I, uh, so that may circumvent the question, but I think if we're really talking about a warrior as, like I think of my wife as a warrior, She's gone through a lot, and she's just so strong. Mm -hmm. um, I always feel the mental aspect is much more difficult. If you don't have that mental locked-in drive, motivation, whatever you want to call it, that passion that drives you, you're never going to get through those barriers 
that you need to show to be a warrior in whatever aspect you're you're leading troops i mean in combat at 20 i took over on my 24th birthday and the next day we were out on patrol so Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I this really enjoyed this, actually. Incredible. It's great I'm talking to you guys. I, I literally, I have so many questions, but, you know. It was great time. to have you on the show, Chris. That's great. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me on the show.